If you've made the decision to call your bank on the phone, you've probably exhausted whatever other alternatives are. You've tried their app or their website to solve whatever it is you want. You can't find it. So you're calling in to finally talk to a human. And when you end up having to deal with computers for the next five minutes, that's very frustrating. Your people know where your customers are experiencing friction. You know, if you, if you have a, a call center or people who are supporting the customers or the branch people who interact on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, if you ask them, what annoys our customers? They'll tell you. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, where James Robert Lay interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello, I am James Robert Lay, and welcome to episode 297 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, and I'm excited to welcome Roger Dooley to the show. Roger is the author of Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. And he also wrote Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage, which was named a top three management book and best business book in strategy and business annuals list. Both are important reads. And today we're going to explore Roger's insights and thinking from these books to guide you, dear listener, so that you can maximize future growth at your bank, at your credit union, or at your fintech. Welcome to the show, Roger. It is good to share time with you today. Well, thanks so much for having me on, James Robert. Absolutely. And before we get into talking about these two very important subjects, particularly today in a world that uh, some might feel a little confused about, uh, they might feel the crisis, the, the perceived banking crisis, uh, what is good in your world? Positive, personal, professional, it's your pick to get started on a positive note, as always. Well, positive note, I, you know, there's so much to be excited about. Uh, for me, one very positive and poss possibly negative too, but you have to look at the bright side rather than the dark side, uh, is the amazing rapid advance in artificial intelligence. We've yes. all seen uh, explode in the last couple of months. And right now it's certainly finding application for content creation and such. But uh, I think that the implications for uh, better, more personalized, and maybe more frictionless customer service are there too. Well, let's start there because I, I have a question about that. When we think about the age of AI that we're moving into, friction, communication, content creation, how important is it for financial brand leaders to study what I view as still one of the most complex machines on planet Earth, which is the human mind? Well, clearly, uh, businesses depend on an understanding of how our brains work to be successful. Just about every large business, uh, including, I'm sure, the biggest banks, uh, now have a behavioral science unit, a team of people who focus on, okay, how do our customers, how do our employees' brains process this information? Uh, what are their biases? How are they going to react? If we want them to do something, how can we do that in an ethically pers persuasive way? So, you know, I think that leaders do acknowledge it, but at the same time, there's also a lack of empathy for just the human side of business. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've had 
difficulty in communicating with some big banks lately, where before you could call up your local branch, you would talk to a human who was physically in that little building. Uh, now you get into some kind of a voice menu hell where uh, you, know, you can get all your questions answered, you can check your balances and all these things that you don't want to do. That wasn't why you called in the first place, because you could do that online. Yes. Uh, and really, it's, uh, it's a very frustrating experience. Uh, not true of all banks, though. Why is that? Because you're bringing up a very important word that has been a pattern on this podcast, empathy. Um, and, and particularly, I would say empathy in today's age of AI is a, a, an advantage. Why is that a challenge for some? Well, I think that some people just, that would be very, some people are very empathetic, others aren't. And I think often to rise to the highest levels of business management, Empathy isn't necessarily uh, the key driver of that. In some cases, it is. Some managers succeed because of their great empathy. Uh, others uh, may be because of their uh, tremendous analytical ability, their uh, ability to focus on tasks, uh, to motivate others by, by various means. So, uh, you know, generally, I think it's been an overlooked characteristic, an overlooked skill, uh, and. Uh, it's not something that typically we test for. I don't know if I've ever seen a, a company say, okay, we've got our empathy test to determine who gets promoted. I haven't seen that. I would love to get your take on this because I've been thinking a lot about this and actually looking for ways to quantify empathy, uh, You know, testing against it to see if we can measure a baseline or a benchmark and then coach against it, improve it, optimize it, quantify it. But if we think about intelligence, IQ, EQ being emotional intelligence, and then you also have AQ, which is adaptability quotient. Thinking about EQ, emotional intelligence, when combined with AQ, adaptability, has the potential to be greater than IQ alone, coming back to your thoughts about uh, AI. Where might there be opportunities, because this all comes back to, to the brain, it comes back to the mind, to level up our capabilities on the EQ and the AQ side, thinking that, well, IQ, it's important, but maybe these other two areas, that's our unique human differentiation in the age of AI. Right, well, obviously, I think, uh, James Robert, all of these things are important. You know, you can't have a manager who's just good at one thing. High IQ uh, and lack of other skills is not going to uh, survive very long in business. But, uh, you know, how can we integrate those? I, I think that's a great question. Companies need to be thinking more about that because often uh, the metrics they use for performance measurement, for promotion, uh, aren't geared to those softer variables. And I think that sometimes, too, business people associate uh, empathy or EQ uh, as being almost like, well, this person is too squishy. You know, yeah. uh, they can't make the, the hard call. I think that a highly empathetic person can still fire people if they have to, but they will do it uh, in a more empathetic and ethical way than uh, you know, sending somebody an email in the middle of the night or uh, doing it by voicemail. I think about Blair Enns, who I spent a lot of time with. Uh, he mentored me for a few years, um, and he wrote the book called Win Without Pitching. And one of his ideas is to be ruthlessly kind. And it's the idea that, yes, you can be empathetic, but still make the tough decisions, still have the tough conversations. And, and I want to guide this conversation into Brainfluence. It was written back in 2011. I think it's still relevant today. Highly recommend the dear listener grab a copy. And something I've shared before on this podcast is 95% of our decision making is rooted at a subconscious level. And when we think about marketing and sales and communication, particularly through the lens of financial services, a lot of the narrative is around facts and figures, logic, if you will, the, the, the 5%, the conscious mind. And you know, 
that for brands that want to level up future growth, they, they, they must stop marketing. They must stop selling to just 5% of the mind and look at the other 95%. Why is this? Well, I think, uh, there, first of all, let me talk about that 95% number. That's from uh, Gerald Zaltman of Harvard. Uh, and nobody knows for sure exactly what that percentage is. It's really not quantifiable. But basically, the point is that most of our decision-making processes are non-conscious. And uh, to that statistic, I'd also add the insights of Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, who says that we have two kinds of thinking. Uh, he wrote his famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which represents system one and system two thinking. System one being uh, fast and energy efficient, automatic, emotional, uh, sometimes rule-based. And then system two is that logical sort of rational grind through a thought process. And uh, his key insight is that our brains don't like to be in system two. They don't like actually thinking hard about things. Right. That's why, you know, we make most of our decisions in system one. If you go to the supermarket, you don't agonize over every purchase. You bought the same brand you bought last time. That's a, a rule that you're using. Or you buy the cheapest one because you don't really care about the product that much. Or you buy the biggest one because, you know, you won't have to buy it for a while. You know, all of these things are mostly uh, non-conscious. It's only occasionally when you get to some rather challenging decision about, gee, I'm going to buy this uh, new uh, nutrition supplement. Uh, then you start reading labels and comparing the ingredients and such. But most of the time, uh, you don't do that. You couldn't, you couldn't survive the day if you didn't do most of your decision-making in system one. And the point is, if you're persuading your customers with rational, logical arguments, uh, you're pushing them into this uncomfortable mode of thinking. Now, that's not to say that you can't use logic. You do need those uh, rational reasons to do business with you or to choose this particular product because, uh, well, there's the old saying, uh, people uh, buy with emotion, justify with logic. So they're going to make the decision based on their feeling, but then they will explain it in terms of, well, this interest rate was better, uh, the terms of this deal were better, and so on. Yeah, that's a great point. And you're thinking about the idea of thinking fast and slow, logic versus emotion. When we consider financial brand leaders, um, one of the things that I wrote about in my book, Banking on Digital Growth, was the banker's brain. It's a very smart brain, very logical, very rational. But back to your point, people buy with the heart. How might there be a, a disconnect, if you will, between the banker's mind and the consumer's mind? And, and could that create some unintended conflict of just the way that we naturally communicate to the world from our own perspective. And in, in another you know, point is, is maybe we project our worldview on other people that they think just like we think. Well, yeah, I, I think I can go back to my original example of the difficulty sometimes in contacting a human in your local bank branch. Uh. Uh, there, uh, you know, there is a disconnect. Obviously, people made rational decisions that, hey, this is going to make us more efficient. It's going to reduce uh, the staff we need. It's going to reduce uh, other issues where people waiting on hold, for example, because there's only one staff person available and there's multiple callers. And in some cases, I mean, they may say, well, this is good for the customer because they're getting dealt with immediately, even though they're having to listen to these uh, tedious menus. But uh, there is uh, one local bank here in the Austin area uh, that uh, advertises um, a human in, I think it's 20 seconds. Now, just get compare that to going into voice menu hell to a bank that says, hey, you call us, you're going to be talking to a human right away. You know, I mean, that to me is a very empathetic understanding of what many customers want. 
You know, if, if you've made the decision to call your bank on the phone, you've probably exhausted whatever other alternatives are. You've tried their app or their website to solve whatever it is you want. You can't find it. So you're calling in to finally talk to a human. And when you end up having to deal with computers for the next five minutes, that's very frustrating. That's a great point, and it's a good transition to your other book, Friction. I think about uh, what we have been doing a lot of teaching and education around, particularly in the age of AI in a digital world, is using digital channels to get people in touch with people as quickly as, you know, quote unquote, humanly or digitally possible. And if my memory serves correct, I think that's Frost Bank out of the Austin, San Antonio area. And I love that positioning. And in fact, we have done studies with our own financial brands that we've been working with. Um, For example, if someone is in the consideration stage of a buying journey, right next to a call to action to apply, there is a secondary call to action, uh, request a callback. And around 30% of people that request a callback end up converting for a the loan product or for the deposit product because they had questions, but they needed a little bit more reassurance. They needed that little bit extra confidence to get to the other side of that experience. And then I think about some recent work from Jay Bear um, and what he's been writing around is the idea that speed um, is key to the overall experience and, and connecting people with people, let's talk about friction here. When you think about friction and, 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 and the writings that you did in this book, why write friction? And I think that's such a, a great title, particularly through what we're seeing in the digital services, in the, in, the, in the banking space right now. There's a lot of friction that's upsetting a lot of people. Well, I thought it was important and I, it focuses first and foremost on customer experience, but it gets into employee experience. It gets into citizen experience, even personal experience. Our lives as humans are filled with unnecessary effort that we have to go through. And, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable, but in many cases, uh, it isn't unavoidable. It's a a choice by somebody. You know, when you go to check out at the supermarket uh, and you see that either you have the choice of waiting in a lengthy line for a human cashier, or you can go to a checkout, uh, an automated checkout, and do all the work yourself and figure out how to weigh things and put in codes for tomatoes and such. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, to me, that is unnecessary friction. I think it's great to have that option for a very quick checkout, but uh, at the same time, don't make it difficult to give people that the service that they want. And it's it's just absolutely everywhere. You know, we think of something like the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles as being the classic example of mm. a high friction experience where they really don't care about the uh, the customers. They just uh, are doing their bureaucratic thing. And if you have to wait, you have to wait. Uh, but you know, a lot of companies uh, they aren't quite that bad. But what I've seen is the companies that focus on the positive side, on making things frictionless. They are the ones that disrupt industries. I mean, example from the financial space, uh, who is the biggest consumer lender? Rocket Mortgage, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, click it's not button, the- Click what, button, get mortgage, I think was exactly. the Exactly, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's sort of over-promising. It's a little bit more difficult than uh, clicking the button, but uh, that is their whole premise, that we are going to make 
getting a mortgage, which uh, I've been through multiple times, and it's always a tedious process with a million forms and confusing things. You usually need a, uh, somebody to guide you through it uh, because it's that confusing. Uh, and for them to say, okay, we're gonna import all your data. Uh, we're going to autofill your forms for you. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and minimize your effort. Uh, that has propelled them, not just to being the highest volume, but also the one who always leads in customer satisfaction surveys. Uh, so, I mean, to me, that, that's one example. Uh, you know, another example, we're doing this interview virtually. We have had, uh, we've all been doing way too much uh, virtual stuff in the last few years. It's good to see things are getting back in person. Uh, but uh, during the pandemic, one brand became synonymous with any kind of uh, video call or uh, video conference. And that was, of course, Zoom. Yes. Uh, you know, we were... We, suddenly we were all on a Zoom call. We were wearing Zoom shirts. Yes. Uh, it didn't matter what we were, if we were using WebEx or something else. So it, everything became Zoom. And that was because oh, they were, oh, well, they were not just built during the pandemic. Three years before the pandemic, they were already surpassing these much bigger, better brands, better finance brands like uh, uh, Cisco, Microsoft, Google. Uh, and you know, how did this startup do that? You, you know what their company mission statement is? make communications frictionless. Mm. Uh, I mean, and that provides such clarity to every single person who works there. It doesn't matter if they are a web designer, an app developer, uh, somebody in compliance or legal, uh, IT, uh, you name it. If they're gonna do anything that changes the customer experience, they have to ask themselves, is this going to help the mission or hinder the mission? Yes. And if it's hinder, they're probably gonna to have to justify it to the CEO. Uh, so, I mean, to me, and uh, Cisco's mission statement was uh, some crazy thing about uh, uh, shaping the future of the internet and creating unprecedented value for investors and employees and ecosystem partners and it, like no guidance at all, no clarity. Right. Uh, and, you know, and what happened then was the fact that for its history, Zoom had been focused on making things easy. When the pandemic hit, even corporate IT departments said, man, we're never gonna be able to get you know, 300 users on WebEx uh, by Monday right. uh, for the big meeting. Uh, do Zoom, they'll be able to figure it out. Just like people feel stressed about money, we understand digital growth can also feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming. But it doesn't have to feel this way for you because you can join the Digital Growth University to gain clarity through education, to overcome the fear of the unknown. Build your team's courage with a growth strategy to eliminate the fear of change and increase your confidence with coaching to remove the fear of failure. Visit digitalgrowth.com university to apply. Yes, and I think that right there, a couple of key takeaways, the mission, the purpose, if you will, of, of Zoom preceding the pandemic that was a North Star that everyone had clarity around. And, and, and I wanna stick on this point of the internal um, aspect of friction or reducing or eliminating friction. Because if, it, if I look at 2010 to 2020, the kind of the overarching narrative um, in the ecosphere, CX, customer experience, I'm looking at 2020 to 2030 is, is maybe we're going to start looking more internally at EX, employee experience, because the the customer experience can only be as good as the employee experience. And I think now when we're looking at what's going on with quiet quitting and, you know, social media and, you know, some, some recent layoffs, that's going to be a key factor. Now, when it comes to financial services, there's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of transformation as with almost every other vertical, uh, but digital transformation, uh, pandemic sped that up, 
change is hard, change is scary, change is painful, change has a lot of friction. Um, when it comes to building frictionless corporate cultures, opportunities there from your perspective going forward. Yeah, you know, I've been talking about uh, this topic uh, practically since friction came out that you, you, your customer experience depends on your employee experience. Uh, I've had Tom Peters on my podcast a few times, and he's emphasized that your customers can never be happier than your employees. Yes. I don't think that all CEOs believe that. I think that uh, even Jeff Bezos, who tremendously successful CEO, built uh, one of the biggest companies uh, on the planet, uh, initially was solely focused on the customer and the employees. Uh, he, he wasn't not caring about them, but they were basically there to serve the customer and their interests were secondary. And I don't think there was a lot of empathy. I mean, when you read some of the stories about what's going on in the warehouses and yeah. such uh, with uh, people being monitored uh, continuously and you know, they stop for 20 seconds and get called out for it. Uh, you know, that, that's not uh, particularly empathetic or employee-focused. And uh, even now, uh, Bezos himself has done a quick, has a quick turnaround and said, oh, now we want to be the uh, most employee-centric company, too. Uh, whether he, that's actually happening yet, I'm not sure. But at least, I mean, he, he's made that verbal commitment to it, which is saying something. But not everybody realizes that. And, you know, to me, uh, first of all, your people know where your customers are experiencing friction. You know, if you, if you have a, a call center or mm. people who are supporting the customers or the branch people who interact on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, if you ask them what annoys our customers, they'll tell you. But I think that either often nobody asks them that question because they don't want the answer because they say, oh, yeah, well, we know that's not so great, but why that would be very expensive to fix, uh, you know, or man, that's uh, legacy code. We can't touch that. And all, you know, a million excuses why. So they don't ask the question. Or if they, if they ask it, they just say, well, okay, we can't deal this with this and this and this because uh, that's too expensive or, gee, that's in the roadmap for two years from now and, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, when people, your people see that you are committed to uh, solving their own problems yes. too, where, where's the friction in your own experience? Where are you filling out forms that aren't really necessary? Are there approvals that you go through uh, that aren't uh, really necessary? You know, often businesses have a way of carrying forward processes and procedures uh, that, uh, uh, you know, end up not really serving uh, the company. They were put there at one point because, well, we don't think that people are going to do this correctly or they're going to do it honestly. And it's become uh, now part of the rigid uh, bureaucratic process that wastes everybody's time. And these things need to be reexamined. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, hey, uh, here are two rules that we can get rid of. Yep. Uh, so by talking to your people and asking them, uh, what do our customers complain about? And then asking too, how can we make your job easier? Now, that's kind of counterintuitive. You know, nobody thinks about making their employees' jobs easier. They think about, well, how can we make you more productive? How can we help you get more done? Right. Uh, but when you ask people, how can we make your jobs easier? They'll tell you about those uh, stupid things that they have to do that waste their time. They know it's not serving them. It's not serving the company or the customer. Yes, and, and when we're talking about making the job easier, for the the employee optimizing the ex the employee experience the cx would then continuously rise externally i think about a conversation that i had with the uh, ceo over at apexscore.ai they're starting to measure this touchy-feely emotional subject that i'm curious because you know we, we we touched on this before the squishy stuff um that we're talking about here internally 
Do you think it is a, from a business culture standpoint, we don't really talk a lot about feelings and emotions. Make it feel easier. Make it feel better. How how might that be a an unconscious roadblock to unlocking future growth potential going forward into the future if we're not aware of some of the things that are holding us back within our own internal selves? I always often say, you know, if we want to transform our organizations... Um, we have to transform the self to transform the team. Then we have to transform the team to transform the organization. But we try organizational transformation and we don't never make it down to the individual transformation. And that's where I think the conflict comes from. So what's your take on that? Transforming the self to transform the team, transform the team to transform the organization. Well, I think first, empathetically talking to people is a start, although people can't always explain or articulate uh, uh, everything about uh, you know what uh, what's driving their feelings, their emotions. I mean, that's difficult. And you know, for, boy, 15 plus years, I've been writing about neuromarketing, which some people call consumer neuroscience. Yeah. Uh, and that is, uh, it, I, I use it in a very broad sense. Uh, so I encompass use of behavioral science and marketing and such as part of that. But if you look at the sort of harder tools of consumer neuroscience, uh, things like measuring uh, brain waves with EEG mm-hmm. or measuring uh, biometrics like heart rate, skin conductance, uh, breathing rate, temperature, and so on, uh, these things all give you clues as to how people are feeling, how people are reacting to something. And for years, uh, these were used mainly by big brands, BMWs, Coca-Colas, to evaluate expensive advertising. So you're gonna do a Super Bowl ad, well, it's okay to dump 50K into a neuromarketing study to see which of three versions uh, seems to produce better non-conscious responses from consumers. But trying to employ those same tools for um, smaller businesses uh, or even smaller problems in big businesses just didn't work. But in the last few years, uh, spurred ahead by the pandemic, there's been an explosion of new tools uh, that uh, let any size company or even big companies look at any size problem, yeah. uh, either uh, with internally or small agencies can adopt these tools. Uh, and one thing that comes to mind in terms of measuring uh, people's responses uh, to uh, their how uh, the tools they're using, the training they're getting, and so on, uh, they're is now one company offering uh, smartwatch neuromarketing. Basically, use a smartwatch uh, and a mobile phone app, Android or Apple. Uh, you can get second-by-second readouts. Uh, this company measures two uh, variables. They measure what they call immersion, which is how uh, emotionally engaged the person is with whatever it is is happening in front of them. And uh, then the other is psychological safety. Do they feel safe or threatened? Uh, and Accenture, for instance, is using this now to evaluate training. Mm. Uh, they can uh, equip a few people to go into a training session uh, with that app. And it's, since it's um, so subtle, people forget it's there. You know, if you go in wearing a, a giant EEG headset, yeah. uh, that's going to feel pretty awkward. Uh, and it's going to be awkward for the presenter and everybody else. But uh, this is uh, pretty much completely invisible and transparent. So you get those more natural reactions. And you can see, uh, you know, how things are going. Where are people uh, engaged? Where are they starting to lose that engagement? Where do they feel uh, maybe not safe suddenly? Uh, you know, if the presenter suddenly uh, gets sort of in your space and asks you a question, uh, uh, you're probably going to see that spike. So, uh, you know, these tools, I think, can also be used for measuring other aspects of employee experience, not just that, but other tools like uh, uh, eye tracking, uh, maybe facial coding and others to see when people are interacting with the digital tools that we all use these days. Uh, you know, 
Where are they getting confused? Where are they uh, slowing down? Do they feel suddenly, wow, oh, that was a surprise. Yes. You know, and you, you can make the tools themselves better. Yes, and I think about some of the work that we've been doing on the digital secret shopping side of things, uh, websites and loan and deposit applications, you know, being able to measure both quantitatively and qualitatively, but quantitatively, we can look at click rage or tap rage on a mobile device, like where, where people are yes. getting frustrated without saying anything. And that's where I have an acronym, go all in on people, ask good questions, listen to what they say, and then learn through observation because it's the, it's the unsaid that we all often can get a, a lot of good insight into how they're feeling because back to your point, sometimes it's very hard for them to articulate that. Um, they've never really given that any conscious thought. It's more of that subconscious emotion that is, is it, it is difficult to, to, to get that into the conscious mind and then to be able to, to, to say it verbally. I want to come back to what you're talking about here, like with the watch example, because to me, this is like that next step, this next level. You started the conversation talking about the chief behavioral officer and how we're bringing some of this into the financial services space. I think of a lot of financial brands, though, that they're, they're not there yet. Um, they might be having some conversations at the executive level, at the board level. What are some of the other technologies that, that we could be considering to build some of these practices internally? And then I want to get really practical as we start to wrap up, but let's maybe one or two other technologies off the top of your head. Practically speaking. Well, okay. I think that uh, clearly uh, there's a host of digital analytics tools that right now can tell you a lot about customer behavior and employee behavior if you just look at the metrics. I mean, yep. even free tools like Google Analytics. I yep. mean, there's so much data in there. Uh, but uh, to get to some of the more uh, interesting ones, uh, now for uh, take eye tracking. Eye tracking used to be something that had to be done in a laboratory yes. setting with either uh, very expensive glasses or very expensive sensors to see where people were looking uh, as they interacted with advertising or anything else, any kind of content. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are two much less expensive solutions. There is device uh, cam eye tracking that can use webcams, phone cams, tablet cams uh, to do a not nearly as precise, but a usable form of eye tracking. So uh, that has two advantages. First of all, you don't need the super expensive equipment. Second of all, you can get a very large sample size very quickly yeah. because it can be done remotely. You know, you could push it out uh, uh, to dozens or hundreds of people uh, in the space of uh, you know, just a few minutes and get results back within 24 hours. Right. Uh, so, and that's a huge difference versus uh, scheduling laboratory yes. sessions, <laughs> bring people in one at a time and so on. Uh, so it's, uh, is it as precise? Uh, if you look at a heat map, does it look as burned in as uh, the nice uh, Toby glasses and such? No, not, it doesn't, but it may be good enough for many problems. And even beyond that, now, uh, at least three companies that I can think of are offering uh, basically AI simulation of human eye tracking. Wow. So what each of these companies did was feed uh, thousands and thousands of human eye tracking studies uh, into a machine learning process that then create an algorithm to predict where humans would look when they're presented with new content. And supposedly they back-tested these things and uh, they typically estimate an accuracy from 90 to 95% uh, and uh, of what humans will look at. Again, is this as good as a real lab eye test? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's, yes. it's a prediction. It's not truth. But, uh, you know, if you're trying to figure out, gee, uh, I'm looking at two different versions of this particular page on our website. Are you going to uh, commission an eye tracking study? No. But could you run through this algorithm in uh, five minutes or so? Yes. Uh, and get your answer back. Uh, and it's probably going to be good enough for that kind of question. 
And I think that right there is such a practical takeaway. It's like, when, when was the last time, dear listener, you did take a look at your website and how you're positioning product and copy on the page? I know for many, um, over 80, 85% within the vertical, they've never done any type of digital secret shopping, testing, or study. Um, and it's these small little changes that can have huge implications. I think about one, we were using a platform called Mouseflow, um, and we were looking at how far the scroll went down on a page. And this one particular financial brand, they had their primary call to action to apply or open an account, very bottom of the page. Zero percent of people never saw that. So no one ever saw the call to action. And so the simple, logical next best step, move it up on the page. And when they did that, conversions start happening. So it's like we, we must take time to, to break free from the doing, to pause, to review, to reflect, to learn, to then think about how we can do even better and go through this next iteration process. When we think about where someone can get started with this, and there's already plenty of practical takeaways, but like I said, I, I think this is a very new area of practice within financial services at a macro level, although some of the larger FIs are doing this, but for some of the smaller, maybe local community financial brands, maybe even the regionals, what would be the next best step that you would recommend that they could take to just move forward and make progress because we know that all growth begins with a small, simple step, a commitment today that creates momentum over time. You know, I'm going to go back to the questions that I mentioned, and this isn't necessarily uh, the uh, my recommendation for the best science to use or you know, the best technology, but uh, to me, if you want to make some very quick progress, uh, ask your frontline people, mm. what do our customers complain about, and listen carefully, and uh, then secondly, ask, how can we make your job easier? You know, if you do those two things, you're going to get some actionable items. I guarantee it. Yes. And but it's important to listen to them. I, I to one very quick uh, story that I had uh, years ago. Uh, I had my own little call center. We had a, a, a direct marketing company. It's very small, uh, like maybe a dozen people in it or something. And people were always complaining about something with the order entry or order entry. Like, gee, if if this happens, this is really difficult to do. And basically, whenever they brought it to me, I said, yeah, okay, but this is the software that we're using. You know, that's they designed it, not me. Uh, and then one time I sat on the phones for half a day uh, just to, you know, get that sort of first-hand customer experience. And I had encountered that same situation. And suddenly, like, my eyes were open and said, yes. whoa, this is horrible. Why, you know, why is this like this? This is awful. And immediately after that session, got on the phone to the software company and said, hey, this is awful. you got to fix that. But, uh, and that, I will admit, was my problem. I did not listen to what my people were telling me. I just dismissed it as, well, yeah, I understand that's a little inconvenient for you, but that's the way it is. It was only when I experienced it firsthand uh, that I then saw how inconvenient it was. But I encourage everybody not to make that same mistake. Listen uh, and trust them that if they're telling you this, it's probably true. That's a fantastic narrative and an example. And it really is one that shows empathy because it's the old adage, you, you can't really understand someone until you walk a mile in their shoes. And in this particular case, you couldn't really understand someone until you sat in the call center seat for half a day and, and, and felt those experiences. I, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with executive teams and boards of directors saying, you know, we're thinking about FinTech and all of the neobanks. Have you ever opened an account or applied for a loan with one of these other neobanks or these FinTechs? And like, no, I said, then I can sit here and tell you all day long about who they are and what they do, but until you feel it, until you experience it yourself, 
it, 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 it will not be real to you. The same is true. Take your example here. Call into your call center from the seat, not the CEO or the CFO or the COO or the CMO. Call in from the seat of the account holder and tell me how it feels. Um, once again, and I think back to your point, to use your words, your eyes were open because it helped you begin to see different. And as a result, you begin to think different. You felt different. And then ultimately something new happened going forward into the future. This has been a great conversation today, Roger. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your perspective. If someone wants to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way that they can get in touch and where can they grab some copies of your books? Well, the books, Brainfulness and Friction, are available everywhere books are sold. Uh, as far as uh, connecting with me, rogerdooley.com is the best place to start. I am most active on social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Connect with Roger, learn with Roger, grow with Roger. Roger, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. This has been a lot of fun today. It has been. I think we could go for another hour, but uh, thanks for the invite, James Robert. As always, until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights along with coaching and guidance, visit digitalgrowth.com insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.